Hello, my name is Tucker Johnson, and I am your host today as we experience NIMSY Live, where they talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff global companies need to delight their international customers or to at least not piss them off too much. On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I'm always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set. So let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests we should reach out to for future episodes. And if you haven't already done so, make sure that you are subscribed. I mean, if you desire, make sure that you are subscribed to NIMSY Insights as we are frequently publishing industry research for the language industry and global business. Um, all sorts of good research coming from NIMSY Insights. Also, if you follow us on LinkedIn, then you're going to be one of the first people to find out when we schedule new events like this. And if you follow us or subscribe to us on YouTube, you can catch all past episodes of NIMSY Live. We've had some really great conversations over the last 97 issues. Really quickly, before we get into it too much, today's guest it was recently featured... Of several months ago, I'm catching up here. I, I, you know, I'm late to the party here, but recently featured in Multilingual Magazine in the June 2023 issue. His name is Hassan Banava, and there's a very nice profile of him right here on page, starting on page 21, 22, and that's what we're going to be talking a little bit more about today. If you are not aware of Multilingual Magazine, then I will make you aware. Multilingual.com is the web presence for Multilingual Magazine. Of course, there are also monthly print issues. You can be a print subscriber, regardless of where you're at in the world. But what I want to draw your attention to today is, of course, they have frequent industry news. Every day we're publishing news stories about the industry over at Multilingual Magazine. And also, if you're not a big reader because who is these days? All of that news is also available in podcast format. So if you like five quick three to six minute podcast episodes that'll help you stay on top of the industry, go subscribe to Localization today on your podcasting platform of choice. Now, today, getting into it here, we are, of course, talking to Sasan Banava, who is featured in the June issue here. You can follow along at home or online if you like. Uh, we'll dive right into it. Uh, Sasan is a global tech leader with a history of heading localization teams at Uber and Google. He now leads the globalization team at Square while also offering insights as a localization consultant. Sasan's academic pursuits include advanced project management and leadership training from Stanford and Harvard, along with a Bachelor of Arts in Near Eastern Studies. He is also a commercial pilot. He has a commercial pilot's license, which is super cool. And he has, he's a, he's has songs on Spotify, which I may or may not play for you live today. We'll see how it goes. Um, so a true renaissance man. Sasan, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tucker, for having me. It's a pleasure to be joining you. Oh. And uh, good morning and afternoon to all the audiences. Yeah, the ple we'll probably have a smaller audience today because of the time zone. Um, we normally do these in the issue, but lots of people are going to be watching the recording. Um, it's hard to, as I was writing your introduction, it's hard to cram everything into a paragraph or two. You have <laughs> quite the career, and that's 
kind of what I wanted to start this conversation off with today. Tell us a little bit about yourself. That's quite the journey from Google to Uber to Square. And I'm super interested personally in understanding what have you noticed working in localization teams at all these different companies? What do they do the same? What do they do differently? What are some of the learning opportunities you've taken away from all of those different places? Yeah, that that's a very good question and, and packed with all kinds of uh, information bites within it. Generally, globalization teams share across few companies I've been similar profiles, meaning there is some understanding, some translation and cultural work to be done. Uh, there is a team formed, generally hybrid teams, meaning some in-house team members uh, and some vendors. And uh, there is going to be a tooling need and a workflow and you're supporting product and services of a company going to global audiences <laughs> and users. Um, these are some of the setup, similar setup. Uh, at times it feels like the wheel uh, is uh, being reinvented in every company. Uh, sometimes information sharing, uh, I think uh, programs like yours actually are helping with, with that knowledge to be distributed and multilingual magazines. Um, but general observation for me uh, has been from Google going to Uber to Square is the feeling is like, okay, here we go. We got to do this again. There is this All education. Yeah. yeah. Do it again from scratch. <laughs> and uh, so that, that, that's a feeling I uh, usually have. Yeah. No, no one has it all the way figured out yet. <laughs> every, yeah. every company has room for improvements. And I, I think that's one. So I, I come from the vendor side. Um, my, I was born and bred, let's say, on, on the vendor side of the industry. So I worked with all sorts of different clients. And I kind of took it for granted until I you know, started NIMSY. I really took it for granted that I had all of this exposure to how different localization programs are managed because I worked with dozens of different clients. And one thing I've realized is that's a struggle for client-side localization managers because you've worked for at least three companies. So you know how three companies do it, but you don't know how dozens of different companies do it. So that can be a struggle. For, for, for sure. Um, what ends up happening is that you find yourself trying to pitch uh, the value of globalization, localization, translation, internationalization. You're trying to secure headcounts and budget so you can do a proper job. You're trying to get the attention of executives on product, engineering, marketing, legal, health content that, you know, what are the processes to follow? Uh, as, as you know, localization uh, of products is in such a way when it's done well, it's like a mirror. It's like a glass, see-through glass. You don't even notice yeah, that it's there. Exactly. And the moment it's not good, it just blocks user experience. It impacts the brand revenue, and and everyone's like, oh, how hard could it be? It's just a translation, right? You know, my engineer speaks, like, you know, this language X and Y, and it's that journey of explaining. Okay, it's not as easy as yeah. one thing. Yeah, it, it's kind of that. It's funny because on the client side, localization programs are fighting for, as you put it in your interview in Multilingual, fighting for a seat at the table oftentimes, right? Mm -hmm. And fighting for visibility. You want the CEO to understand and know about the localization department. And kind of the ironic, I guess is the word, thing, is that when the CEO does know about the localization team, usually it's because someone screwed up. 
<laughs> and it got the CEO's attention. And that's that's not what we want. That's what not what we want. What we want is for companies to be more globally minded and think about you know the global first strategy rather than this old idea of localization as an afterthought. But you know, I I think that's getting better, right? That, that's trending up, wouldn't you say? Absolutely agreed. Over last 15, 20 years, at least my observation has been, it has improved. We have more senior roles in the industry. 20 years ago, there weren't that many vice presidents of globalization, um, executive in the executive rank. So we see that more and more uh, companies are understanding, okay, uh, the majority of users will be coming outside of the US uh, an international audience is going to drive your revenue. So it's important to get the localization right. And it's just beyond just translation and rendering of text. You need to understand maybe the design, element choices, uh, uh, the, the currency, all the internationalization engineering effort needed to make sure the user understands the product feels local. And, and I think overall it's been trending up. Yeah, and that, I want to pick your brain on that, this new focus on user, this new user-centric focus in the industry. But first, I want to pull up, since you brought it up, a couple points from your your article that you made. And let me just see if I can get you on screen here. Um, there we go. There's room for everybody. So, I mean, we're talking about where the industry is, has been doing better and where it can be improved. And here we start off with something where you feel that the industry can be better. And I'll read it out for our podcast listeners. Globalization as an industry has matured more. Technology has greatly evolved. Machine translation, neural machine translation, AI. Companies generally understand the function better. More senior roles seem to be available on the client side than 15 years ago. An infusion of capital and talent from outside the industry has supported the overall trajectory. All of these factors contribute to a more mature, fully realized corporate globalization environment. And I wanted to focus, I wanted to ask you specifically about this. You say more senior roles seem to be available on the client side than 15 years ago. And there's been an infusion of capital and talent from outside the industry. And this touches on something that I, I say all of the time which is, this is a people industry. It, it's an industry that was founded on the, with the goal of helping people, helping humans communicate with other humans. And it's a very relationship-driven organization or um, industry. What has been your experience? You, you talk a lot about leadership in your profile, multilingual. What has been your experience um, leading different teams around the world? Yes. Uh what I have observed is that, you know, sometimes you may have a leader that may not fully understand globalization, localization, uh, their background could be completely different. So it, it causes a lot of upward management, upward education to explain what is globalization function, why is it important and why we need to do the things we're going to do. Um, so I generally find it that the more we can empower leaders that have a solid globalization background to be in the leadership position for globalization team. Usually you have good success and also managing up and managing across, mm -hmm. which is not always <laughs> easy, uh, depending how, on the landscape of the company. How much time, not to interrupt because you're on a roll here, but how much time would you say? So 
if <laughs> hypothetical, it's not really hypothetical because you do, but hypothetically, if you were managing a client side localization team, how much time would you want your team spending spend as a percentage spend talking to internal, like you say, up and across mm-hmm. versus how much time would you like them managing the supply chain, the, the processes, the technology? Uh, very good question, Tucker. I think that changes, that percentage changes based on the maturity model score of where the team is. Yeah, there's no right answer. Right? But, uh, when, when, when you were starting, when I was starting at Uber and it was just a half a team, half a person, and we were just pitching to the CEO and we we're trying to hire a few linguists to have a proof of concept that, hey, this is the localization team. Uh, you may be spending more time with the executive with inside the company and you may be starting an RFP or maybe an existing vendor that you want to enhance the relationship. So it, it, it's kind of tough to say. Uh, what I can say is that it always has been one of the strategic pillars I have set at Uber uh, and, and uh, you know other companies is that evangelization, yeah. whether it's uh, to the CEO, to the executive, your manager, and the vendor chain, uh, definitely you do want to have a very well-defined, cohesive strategy of how you're going to tackle all, all of this. And also people who are joining the company, you know, as you know, Tucker, we call it uh, eternal education, right? So we assume every time we send a newsletter, we say, assume people just joined the company yesterday and they have no idea what is globalization. So yeah. not to say talk down to them, right? Yeah. But exactly. it's to extend the, it's to be, it's about being accessible. Exactly. Right. Exactly. I really love what the Natalie Kelly says, you know, instead of using the words like localization, internationalization, globalization, which are industry specific term, she was mentioning in one article that use in, with internal stakeholders say multi-locale enablement, you know, we're supporting That's other markets with multi-locale. It just calms people. They don't have to be expert. They don't think they're, you know, we're not insulting their intelligence or otherwise, and they won't be put in a defensive position. So it's more collaborative. And uh, at the same time, you're ensuring every wave of product manager, engineers, marketers that come, you have a localization one-on-one course, ideally as part of the ramp up joining the company, but yeah. sometimes that's not available. Maybe later on, they can go through the course and you give them a certificate. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it's making sure everyone's on the same page. And it's talking about, like you said, don't use words like localization stuff like that. And it's, it's about talking about things that matter to them. Like no one cares about your LQA score KPIs. <laughs> exactly. They're important exactly. to you, right? But if you start talking to the C-suite or one of your internal stakeholders about fuzzy matches, shoot, 80% of people in this industry I can't explain what a fuzzy match is. Right. Yeah. Or how to calculate weighted word counts. Right. So you're going to lose them because they don't care about them. But if you start talking to them and this is a good segue to talking about uh, usability and user experience. But if you start talking to them about end user experience, you know, high end user experience, regardless of what market, regardless of what language they're in mm-hmm. or, you know, connecting with their global customers in a local way. You know, you start talking about things like that. These are things that people care about. Right. Uh- Absolutely agree. What I call in the article as well, beyond the operational metrics, you know, cost, quality, speed, which are all internal. And you want to make sure you do a great job as a team. So you sort of get a seat at the table 
that people respect you to your earlier point. You don't want to be called into a meeting with the executives. Oh, translations are, are, are not good or this problem or more like, hey, you know, you guys are doing a great job and you folks are launching this product in a new market and service. Um, how can we get to the next level of users? What can we yeah. do to improve the revenue and the usability? Those are the conversations that are value add. And when you're talking to a product leader, they want to talk about the quality of their products, their availability of their products across various, you know, various geographies. Yeah. And, and I agree with your point. Yeah, and you talk about, and I, I pulled up a quote here from the article or from the, the profile in Multilingual. You said, getting a seat at the table. Uh, I'll just quote from Multilingual here. It says, the biggest mind sh mindset shift is to see globalization and revenue generating versus, uh, is to see globalization as revenue generating versus a cost center. Then your intention becomes guiding your C-suite to see it as well. In order to accomplish that, first showcase operational excellence, which is cost, quality, speed optimizations, and demonstrate you can scale with the business and efficiently support internal partners and end users while staying up to date with technological advancements and automation, such as MT, automated workflows, artificial intelligence, etc. Effectively manage up, always evangelize, there's that word, have a good communication strategy for various teams, meet and greet new leaders and get alignment on how you can support them. These actions over time will give you enough momentum to reach the C-suite. And I think that's great because it just really sums up what we're trying to talk about here. But to kind of get into the weeds a little bit, what is, okay, I want to evangelize. You've convinced me. I want to evangelize. I want to educate. I want to meet and greet. Um, I want to get out there and start shaking hands and talking to people about this. How do I evangelize? What are some practical first steps that, that I can take? That breaks down. So evangelization, as I mentioned, Taka is, is, is one of the key pillars I've used, the strategic pillars. And it's going to have various uh, phases depending on the maturity, but it has yep. some key elements. So there is the evangelization up, managing your own leader to make sure they understand globalization. So there is that, and, and, and there are courses and LinkedIn learnings on how to manage up effectively. So that's, that's, that's one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. there, there is um, sending information to your partners, uh, product and teams and leaders. So we usually have a, excuse me, monthly newsletter. Mm. We distribute to a, a big portion of the company. We've done it at Uber, we do it at the Square, and we highlight some launches we've had, some projects uh, that are happening, some cost, quality, speed, internal metrics update, and there could be some uh, higher uh, relevance uh, metrics as well when, once you build your muscles to develop uh, those, those dashboards. And, uh, you know, you have requests, you have courses, and so basically it becomes a broadcasting a station on, on globalization brand and, and the value of it and the need for it. So that's another piece we use. Uh, you can do frequent uh, quarterly business review with your localization PGM team for the product side or with the linguist team, with the regional stakeholders, uh, country marketing managers. And the last piece I would add is the learning and development for new folks, as I was mentioning, when new engineers and uh, product managers and marketers come to the company, 
we can encode it and say, hey, if you take this course, you get a little globalization icon in your profile or you get a little pen, some kind of incentive for people to understand how to work with it. Little, a little gamification there. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, essentially what you're talking about, and I always chuckle because, like I said, I come from the vendor side. So this is kind of like second nature for us lowly vendor side folk. But what you're talking about is sales and account management. It's marketing. It's branding. You're, you're doing sales and account management to your internal customers. They're just not necessarily customers. They're stakeholders, right? But there's a big branding component to it is trying to shift that perception of localization where, hey, we're not just a pain in the butt at the end of the product development life cycle that cost you a lot of money and you have no idea why it costs so much money and you're complaining because it's taking longer than you expect. It's actually something that's enabling you, right? And so shifting the conversation upwards and to the left, I would mm -hmm. say, trying to get into those conversations because as long as you're a checkbox at the end of the product development life cycle, you're not going to be having the right conversations with the right people. So you want to be able, you know, shifting left in, in the value chain so that you're actually advising them. Ideally, when it, before a company decides to go into a new market, they should be consulting the localization team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems like common sense to me, but is it happening a lot? No, like it's just not. Sometimes common sense is very uncommon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I agree, Taka, I can't agree more fully. We want to go upstream. We want to be involved in product creation uh, talk to those product managers. We want to be involved in the translation and uh, linguistic QA before the product goes. So at least, you know, the beginning, middle and end, we would like to be involved. We would like to be involved on when global expansion team or whatever is called in various companies, they're deciding on which markets we should go. They should get signal from globalization. Okay, how hard is it to localize to this market? What are the environments is there regulatory challenges and and so on and so forth so we can be a good global partner um, as we discuss these things so yeah. can i agree more you know you know as we're, as we're sitting here you and i fixing all of the problems in the industry uh, i'll bring up another quote from your article where we're talking about where we where you think that there's still room for improvement and there's a much longer context to this. Go read the article, everybody, in multilingual. But it says, areas staying the same or sometimes worse are frag the fragmented approach in the global vendor chain, translators pay, reinventing the wheel in every company, we talked about that, um, and non-experts leading the globalization efforts. These are some of the issues we see today that we were, all, we, we were dealing with 15 years ago. And, oh boy, where do I want to start? Um, I want to, because I know you have good stuff to say about it. Uh, I want to talk about vendor, or not vendor, but translator pay. Okay. Right? Sure. And I'm just, I'm just going to let you go. I'm not even going to ask a specific question because I, I've, I've, I know some of what you're going to say about this. Yeah, yeah, it sounds good. Uh, I mentioned, Tucker, in the article that translators pay could be a big challenge. Uh, for instance, at Uber, at the time, we had a translation company and a review company. Mm -hmm. And then if you're paying one by word count, the other one hourly, all of a sudden you're sending them a 10 word job and one is making few cents, the other one is making 
maybe 10 times more. Yeah. You know, that's just one example. Or it could be that you have your French linguist or to pick a language is collaborating with the lead reviewers, collaborating with the lead translator, and you want them to support the brand image in, in France. But then if the pay is so out of balance, you're going to have uh, some dynamics and some friction, some challenges. I attempted to do some rate harmonization working with both vendors and generally was positive. But as you know, the setup is that you have a big LSP and a smaller LSPs, a smaller LSPs, and sometimes the money didn't find its way all the way to the translator. So this is one of those things that it seems like we're going into circles sometimes. For instance, at Google, we tried going directly to, to the translator, some sort of a cloud model. And at first it was pretty good. We're getting good engagement. And a few years later, the complexity of scope increased so much, the cost became very similar. So we had to abandon it. I've seen that happen. I've seen that play out time and time again, both on the vendor side and the client side. You know, I've seen, you know, very smart, individuals it's not that they're not intelligent i've seen very smart individuals come in look at you know and they're always like some new director that got hired right and you say here non-experts leading the globalization efforts right so this is kind of an example of that and you so you get this new director that comes in it's now in charge of globalization localization and they take a look at the value chain and in our industry which is multiple layers of lsps and service providers and they think, wow, there sure are a lot of middlemen. I'm going to cut this out. I'm going to automate this. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And we're going to work directly with freelancers. And we're going to save a ton of money and work more efficiently. And they're well-intentioned. And like I said, they're intelligent. It's not that they're not stupid. They just don't understand this industry. And they're, time and time again, I've seen people fail. I, I've, I'm trying to think here. I, I don't think I've ever seen a successful long-term solution where the client was engaging directly with freelancers and never decided to go back to the vendor model. Have you? Yeah, I was just thinking, Tucker, when you were mentioning that, uh, well, Wikipedia wasn't necessarily working oh. with vendors, but the users in the country. So I don't know if it's a good comparison. No, that's, but that's a good example. And, you know, Facebook had a crowdsourcing model for a very long time, right? And that's public knowledge. I don't need to yeah, like, disclaim yeah, no, anything. Was, and I remember I was at the Google and they, I think they had launched to France and it was uh, a bit catastrophic and they had to pay a professional vendor to clean it up, you know, and, and the, the example you and I have, you know, just keeps going. Uh, so not to say, oh, it doesn't work, but it seems like there are problems to be solved on a scalability, on a speed, on quality and tone. And, and, and that's the challenge which goes to the core of translation job. It's art and science. Yeah, exactly. And it's that art part that, that screws you up. I think crowdsourcing and direct to freelancer models and stuff, it can get very complicated and complex. And where it really becomes a challenge is when um, it, it comes to like quality control, right? Because let's say I have a product, like one of the reasons it works for like Facebook, I believe, and I wasn't involved with that account heavily. You know what I'm saying? I'm not speaking, giving information. I'm just an outside observer. But I think why a company like Facebook can have a crowdsourcing model is because people, everybody knows Facebook and everyone loves Facebook, or at least they used to, right? 
And so people were excited to be a part of that and give their time and dedicate their time to it. But if you're working for, oh, I don't know, a financial processing company, like no yeah. one's going to be excited to give their time and, you know, dedicate, oh, I'm going to stay up late on Friday night. You know, sorry, sorry, guys, I can't go out. I'm translating for, sorry, um, a financial processing company, not to name any names. Yeah. And so that's why, that's why I said I haven't seen it happen where it's lasted a long time. Um, I agree. I think the incentives are important. And if it's a bigger mission and purpose for bettering humanity, I'm thinking translators without borders now called uh, yeah. Clear Global. Yeah. Maybe there is that element there or Wikipedia and then, uh, you know, yeah. of the country are trying to get their information online. So it's bigger than life, so to speak, projects. But uh, yeah, I mean, to, to piggyback on your example, maybe financial <laughs> processing, uh, the, for many translators may not have that incentives and that uh, experience for yeah. them. I mean, just think against the company or the product. Exactly. But just, uh, talking about the mindset of translators here. So ba based upon, since we're talking about the supply chain here, you've worked with a bunch of different models. You've tried out different things. Um, what is, what is your experience with different supply chain models? And you said you worked with, a, um, in the past, I believe you said you had a translation vendor and a quality vendor. Right. Yeah. That's one model. Yeah. Um, there's a multiple vendor where you split it by language. There's multi-vendor. You split it by products. Right. There's single vendor. Well, you know, at, based upon all of the experience you've had and all of the mistakes you've made, we've all made mistakes. Where, where are you sit today on that? And of course, it depends upon the maturity and the specific situation. Exactly. So that that was going to be the uh... I stole, stole your answer. <laughs> the, 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 the disclaimer that depends on the maturity. However, um, as you mentioned, there are models of uh, translator, uh, translation vendor being the source of truth. And then they have a QA vendor. I think a few teams at Apple, I know they've done that. Or we have a translation vendor and review and their review vendor has the source of truth. I know at least for a time I was at Google, that was the model. We tried to do something similar at Uber, and I think after I departed, uh, I heard, you know, sort of the review vendor is no longer there, and there is some QA checks uh, being done by the translation vendor. You know, the famous case, uh, Salvo, uh, head of Airbnb, I have a lot of respect. He tried a very revolutionary model some years ago at Airbnb, just uh, all the eggs in one basket of translation vendor and the review and and uh, incentivizing them properly to, to have a good, uh, yeah. you know, it's a great success story. He's talked about it in various articles and multilingual. I've literally, I'm working on a report about the Airbnb case study, how they've revolutionized everything. I've literally been working on that all day today. So that's why oh. I'm smiling. <laughs> it, it is good. It is yeah. pretty revolutionary. And uh, I don't hype things up typically like that. Yeah, yeah, what what no. Salvo's done over there is, I have a lot of respect for that guy. Exactly. I remember when I saw that I was at Uber, I was telling my management team, this is brilliant and it is revolutionary. It's so counterintuitive at times. And and I think you can, you've advised many clients and, and I guess you hear my venting is like how many hours and uh, time we have dedicated on the client to deal with arbitration between translation and review vendor, all the processes and sometimes... Yeah. Maybe giving them a better context, empowering them, incentivizing them might be the best thing. So that's where my mind is right now, sort of uh, 
can be empowered, get the right size vendor for the stage of maturity, empower them, and have QA checks and balances in place. Yeah. So you're kind of like pick the right partner. And that's not to say there is no best partner. You know, people ask, like, what's the best LSP? Well, it depends. What's the best TMS? Well, it depends, <laughs> right? There is no best partner. But you, you, put a, uh, you put it quite nicely in Multilingual Magazine about picking a vendor. You say, if you're going to pick a vendor, take a look at the financial health of the company, the level of services offered, technological stack, global footprint, level of engagement with the C-suite, reputation in the industry, uh, metrics, cost, quality, and speed, and references. I'd like to have the attention of the vendor CEO, and the vendor should be demonstrating desire to have our account. Lastly, you should pick your vendor based on company and team requirements as not every vendor is suited to do everything a client wishes. And I love this because it captures something that I think people don't think about sometimes on the client side. And you have, you came from Google and then you went to Uber and then you went to Square, right? And I'm not going to ask you for numbers, but let's just say, I think it's a good assumption that your budget for localization was not the same at all of those three companies. And I'll just leave it at that. Right. And I find if, and I've had this conversation with many clients here at MZ insights, but if you've got a $20 million budget and you're working with one of the top five largest LSPs, you have their attention. If you have a $1 million budget, that's a lot of money to you, and it's a lot of money to some LSPs. But you're working if you're working with one of the top five LSPs, you are a rounding error, which is to say the CEO of that company doesn't know your name, which is to say you're not getting the A-team project managers assigned to your accounts. You're not getting a dedicated PM. You're getting a fractional PM, right? Um and of course, there's going to be people in the comments saying, oh, at my LSP, we never, yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> fine, fine. But in general, and I've, I've seen companies go with one of the big five, top five LSPs, because they think they're the biggest, I want the biggest and the best, but, and I have $5 million revenue to spend, I have $8 million revenue to spend, and then it turns out they don't have a good experience because they can't get good service from that project manager, whereas... If they had shifted to a mid-size LSP, one that's scalable, one that's hungry, wanting to grow, um, has a certain level of technological capacity, they would be getting much better service because that that smaller LSP is thrilled to have them as a client. What, what I, I'm going to shut up. What's your experience with this? Uh, Tucker, I love what you just shared. It, there is a lot of wisdom in that, and that that's that takes years to get to that point as a leader, at least on the client side to see, which is the last point, you know, the right size vendor. And I think it's important to see what's your budget and what type of LSP you need to get. Um, I used to tell the team at Uber, you know, rather be a, a big fish in a small pond when it comes to these vendor relationships, to your point, have the attention of, the vendor CEO and executive team and, and everyone wants to help you out versus uh, being a, you know, a small fish in a big pond and no one knows your name and it's tough to get support. Have similar experiences as you had shared. I think some of the challenges is that LSPs need to, everyone has a 
critical clients, sort of a 20-80 rule, top 20% of uh, LSP's client bring 80% of revenue and there's the long tail. Yep. And I think as a leader, your job becomes doing enough due diligence to see, okay, this is our profile. This is the multi-million dollar budget or whatever it is we're going to spend. Where does it map properly? So as soon as that vendor gets a big account, we are not paralyzed. Or as soon as they get another, let's say, one of the FANG uh, you know, companies, the Facebook or uh, you know, Meta, Amazon, that your account is not going to be neglected. So you mentioned it earlier at the call, it's a human connection it's a human industry yep so it, again relationship become key uh, yep. on enhancing these and i say and i think you put it right here uh you want to have the attention of the vendor ceo and that's powerful vendors out there if you're if you're listening to this and you're trying to close that big deal you better make sure your ceo is involved i don't care if that ceo knows what he's talking about or anything like that but they need to be aware and that's very powerful. Like if I'm on the client side and I'm having a QBR with my vendor, I want to see their CEO or at least a representative from the C-suite. You know, CEOs are busy. It's, it can't be super demanding. But I want to understand where's my escalation path and who, who do I call if things aren't working out for me, right? Someone, someone at that high level. Now, hopefully it doesn't get to that point. Right. And I would argue that while it's important that you have a relationship with the CEO of your vendor, the most important relationship you're going to have is with the project manager because they're the ones or managers, if there's multiple, because they're the ones that you're dealing with on a day to day basis. And a good or bad project manager or team of project managers can make or break. There are no good. You know, I said earlier, there's no best LSP. There are no good and bad LSPs. There's only good and bad project managers. Yeah, it's important to have, to your earlier point, the line of connection to the CEO. We all have been there, at least uh, on my side, that, you know, okay, we really need to escalate to the CEO because, let's say, this theme or pattern or something has been going on. So you always want to have that assurance that someone on the vendor side got, got your back and you, yeah. have a, uh, you have those set of executive eyes. As far as day-to-day -day interaction, yeah, I think probably I've lost count of, how many accounts are uh, in a much tougher space because of that day-to-day -day interaction with the project management team overall didn't go well to the point that the client is switching out of that vendor, you know, mm. which is exactly your point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and when we talk about, we're talking about project managers, we're talking about teams and you've managed a bunch of different teams and you had some really good insights I liked in, in the profile about kind of your philosophy around people management, managing diversity and teams, managing diverse teams. And you started off the article, I believe, with a quote, or the, the profile started off with Simon Sinek, which I love this guy. He's such a, anyways, I, uh, anyways, Simon Sinek says, leadership is not about being in charge, but taking care of your, taking care of people in your charge. And I love this quote about leadership. I'd never heard it before, so thank you for, for making sure to include it. But I wanted to pick your brain, and maybe we can use this as we start wrapping up here, about your experience managing teams. And talk to, talk to us a little bit about your philosophy around that. And particularly, I'd like to hear, like, within the context of managing very diverse teams, because I can't remember the last time I managed 
a team of Americans. <laughs> in the, you know what I'm saying? And you're not even American. Uh, well, you're not from here, right? Right. And so I, I say that for myself. But every team that I've ever managed is just so many different cultures, so many different languages being spoken. And it's challenging. So I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, absolutely. I love that quote from Simon Sinek, uh, wraps of leadership in a sentence. Uh, uh, can you hear me okay? Yep. Okay. Uh, yes, the, co the quote from Simon Sinek wraps up a uh, kind of a philosophy of leadership that you lead from front. You know, you all have seen the picture of the uh, the image that uh, a leader is, you know, in front of the uh, horse carriage and it's either in front or pushing from the back uh, or being uh, given a ride and the team is carrying it forward. So you want to lead from front and you have bigger responsibilities and you learn leadership from great leaders and not so great leaders. You know, the, after you report to different managers, different leaders, you learn what works, what doesn't work, and ideally you also educating yourself. So when it comes to leadership, you want to have a good vision and a strategy and mission. You want to have great communication. And when it comes, you were talking about the program, the project managers break or make it. The globalization team fundamentally lands on those pro uh, program management shoulders when it comes to time, cost, quality, uh, you want a team of elite program managers to move you forward and you want to set an example. So uh, when it comes to leadership, I really want to, I always say the team, three things be having an integrity, being perceptive and uh, being open-minded. Those are a few of the principles I'd like to follow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I've, I've, I started out as an unwilling leader, or uh, I would say I, I, I didn't I didn't ask to be managing teams, right? It's just kind of something that just happened o over the years. And I've gone through different phases myself, right? And I think being here at NIMSI Insights has been a real great learning experience for me. And working with Renato Beninato, right? And... Yeah, I talk shit about Renato all the time, but, you know, don't quote me on this, but he, there, there's a lot I can learn from him, right? He's just a wealth of knowledge, and he's been, been there and done that, as you know. And I think one thing that I found over the last five years is it was a lot easier for me to manage teams when I was paying them with someone else's money. <laughs> right and now that um you know renato and i founded nimsy insights we have our own company there's a whole lot of more complexities behind the scenes and so i still try so I, i'm trying to balance like how do i take care of people in my charge while also making sure that i'm making the right financial decisions so to speak for the company there's no easy answer out there there's no easy answer. And I was just talking to an old friend of mine, you know, industry veteran. I won't name him, but I'm sure you know him um, this morning. And we were talking about that. It's like some days we just wish that you were a project manager again. <laughs> you didn't have to worry about all of this stuff, having all of these mouths to feed. But leadership is a big responsibility, I'd say. Absolutely. Well, you add to leadership, the entrepreneurship and you and... Renato being the founders of NIMSI, there is a lot of responsibility on your shoulder. And so it's not, uh, to your point, it's a lot easier 
that uh, a company's money is coming and you're paying employees and, and you're managing and you're growing your leadership skills versus the choices you're going to make as one of the founders, the type of projects the team is going to get and the money that's going to flow or not. Right. And, and so and it's, 2023 it's has been a lot of not for a lot of people <laughs> and a lot of companies in this industry. I'm sorry to be a downer. It's been no. tough. It's been tough in this industry in 2023. Budgets have dried up a lot. I'm uh, sure you've seen uh, it. Absolutely. To, to, to your point, Tucker, a lot of layoffs have happened yep. in Silicon Valley, which means the money that teams, I mean, the entire localization teams have been let go on the yep. client which means if that leader had the money to spend, that leader is not even there to yeah. spend money with Nimsy or other, uh, you know, uh, consulting firms to, to improve their localization. So I can appreciate uh, it's been tough. My heart goes out to what you said, uh, what you and Renato, that like you still you have to move the ship forward. And uh, I guess... Pressure makes diamond, you know. That's oh, yeah. Really key. <laughs> well, I can say probably both you and me before we started managing people had more hair. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm watching the clock here, Sasan. Um, any closing thoughts? Anything I forgot to ask you? It's been a lovely conversation. Uh, no, I wanted to thank, thank you and, and Renata again for having me on Talk Your Live. It's been a pleasure to be able to be featured in the multilingual magazine and then on Tucker Live to discuss some of my journey. It, it's one data point. It's been a humbling journey and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able to share that with the wider audience and uh, hope uh, to come back again in future. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a really great conversation. It's really great. Thank you for being part of Multilingual Magazine. Thank you for being part of NIMSI. And I will take us out here. Stick around and I'll talk to you afterwards, Sasan. All right, ladies, gentlemen, chat, we are out of time for today. If you enjoyed this episode of MG Live, then join us next time. I don't know when the next time is, but I do know we have at least one more scheduled. So go over to Nimsy's LinkedIn page, go to the events tab, and you can see all of the Nimsy Live episodes that are coming up, and you can sign up so that you receive notifications. I appreciate our guest today, Sasan Banava. I appreciate my colleagues here at Nimsy Insights doing all the hard work so I can have these fun conversations. I appreciate everybody in our industry who responds to our surveys, schedules briefings with us, so that we can include you in all of our published industry research. And lastly, I appreciate you, everyone participating in chat today, which I didn't bring up any chats, sorry about that. Um, everyone joining us live, um, all of the questions, comments, and especially criticisms. I look forward to next time. Cheers.